Keep your Bible open in Matthew 24. For those of you who forgot who I am, I'm John Lambeth. I'm the new pastor of the high school and student ministries here at Calvary. Um, and it's great to be with you here this morning. I was talking to someone a few months ago, and they asked me a question about my views involving some issues about the end times and eschatology and things like that. And I said something along the lines of, you know, I've never really taken a lot of time to study that. I've just never uh, had too much interest in it, and I don't have a really strong opinion about that. And so as the summer preaching assignments came, of course, I get this passage, and I quickly gained an interest in it. So uh, I've really enjoyed learning about this and studying this and listening to what God has to say here. Even though it's a little ironic that I uh, am studying this, I've loved doing it. So I hope you will learn as I have learned and hear from the Lord as I have as well. Let's uh, open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you are our refuge. You are our strength our ever-present help in times of trouble. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted among the nations and you would be exalted here this morning. We pray that as we turn to your word, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that my words would not get in the way of that, Lord. And we ask that your spirit would be amongst us, working and moving. And we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the end of the world is a fascinating topic, and not just for Christians. Do any of you remember in 2012, the Mayan calendar said the world was going to end? And we've always, I think, as human beings, had a fascination with what's going to happen to us as human beings on the earth, or more specifically as Christians. And as Pastor Josh talked about a few weeks ago, I think it has something to do with we feel a longing in our hearts for a a sense of purpose and meaning. That we're not just an accident of the universe, a hiccup of a primordial soup, but that we're headed somewhere, um, and we're drawn to that. We love that story. Sometimes this uh, can get twisted, though. You might remember um, some apocalyptic cult leaders who have leaned on this kind of longing in humans, like Jim Jones or David Koresh. Or maybe you remember the prophecies of Harold Camping or Pat Robertson, that the end of the world would happen soon. They all had different dates they picked. Um, This is a good way to sell books, but it's alien to the the purpose of this text we're going to look at this morning, that Jesus was not trying to give us a date. He was not trying to sell books. He was trying to tell us what to expect to prepare us for suffering. He even says at the end of Matthew 24 that, No one knows the day or the hour. So then you have to ask the question, well, why did he talk so uh, at length about this topic? In all three of the synoptic gospels, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, this is the so-called Olivet Discourse, where he goes for multiple chapters explaining these things. And I think the answer to that is that Jesus wanted us and wanted to encourage us that when we face these sorts of persecutions, and hardships, and betrayals, and unrest, and war, and famine, and the apostasy of those Christians around us that we're so surprised by, and whatever else the church has faced for the last 2,000 years, that God is still in control. He has a purpose that he is bringing about, and it's all going to happen in his timing. He does have a plan. He is coming back. So 
that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so what I want to do is give an overview of the passage in its context and then give you three takeaways uh, where we're headed this morning. Let me just go ahead and tell you so you can be looking for these. The first takeaway is going to be don't put your hope in the wrong kingdom. Don't put your hope in the wrong kingdom. Second one will be don't let suffering steal your joy. And thirdly, don't lose sight of the mission of God. But first, let's look at the context of this passage so we can better understand what's going on in Matthew 24. Because Jesus in the preceding chapters of Matthew has been in almost a constant confrontation with the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of the day. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Matthew 21, uh, we read about the parable of the tenants who were in charge of the vineyard and that when the sun comes, they kill the sun, the owner's son. It says in verse 37, finally he sent his son to them saying, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And then a few verses later, Jesus answers his own question and says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Or again, in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, verses 6 and 7, the king in the story sends out his servants to invite people into the wedding feast, but the guests murder the servants. And then how is the king going to respond? It says in Matthew 22, 7, The king was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city down. So the theme leading into this passage is judgment is coming to Israel and to the leaders of Israel and to the temple because of its rejection of the Messiah and for its hard-heartedness. So then in Matthew 23, which Gerald preached on last week, we see Jesus has his final confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees, and he pronounces a curse over their leadership, a seven woes, as it's called. And then he ends by lamenting over Jerusalem, which in chapter 3, verse 38, he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. So we can kind of see the feel and the theme coming into chapter 24. Matthew sets us up to understand that when Jesus is leaving the temple here for the very last time, and when Jesus is ending his public ministry here, and in in the last week of his life, this is a pretty significant event. And interestingly, if you look back in the Old Testament, we've seen this happen before. Way back in the book of Ezekiel, something very similar happens. In Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, the glory of the Lord comes up out of the temple and leaves the city of Jerusalem and heads east. And in Ezekiel, this is a symbol of the coming destruction. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23. It says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So before the Lord let the first temple built by Solomon be destroyed by the Babylonians, he left the city, left the temple, and stood on the eastern mountain, which is the Mount of Olives. 
And here again in Matthew's gospel, we see the incarnate glory of the Lord, Jesus Christ, leaving the temple under, declaring its judgment, going east, and he's on the Mount of Olives again. So we see a parallel structure, and this time the destruction is coming from Rome. The disciples, though, seem to totally miss the feel of what's going on, because as they're walking from the temple to the Mount of Olives, they stop Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, look at those buildings. Aren't they amazing? Look at the temple complex. Look how beautiful it is. And Jesus kind of looks at them and says, it's, it's all burning down. You shouldn't be impressed. Uh, it's going up in flames. He says in verse 2, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another. And it kind of seems at first like Jesus is being like a Debbie Downer. I had a friend in Birmingham who was famous for doing this. We'd be hanging out at night and be talking about our day, and she would kind of chime in and say, uh, hey, did you guys see on the news that eight people went missing in the mudslides of Bangladesh? And we were like, no, uh, <laughs> where do we go from here? Um, but that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not just being negative. He's He's creating a teachable moment. He's setting up the question that follows because the disciples are going to come back to him and say, tell us more. Because saying that a temple was going to be destroyed was not like saying the church is going to be burned down. This was much, much bigger than that. This, this represented the, the presence of God among his people, the protection of God, and the mediation of God. This was all going to go. So in verse 3, the disciples asked the question, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And I think in the disciples' mind, they saw all these questions pointing to one event. And that is the climax of the age. They thought there was this age, and then the age to come. And they thought Jesus must be talking about pretty much the end of the world. That's what we would call it. They say, okay, the temple's going to be destroyed. Uh, when is that going to happen, and when are you coming back? But Jesus adds a new element to this, but by saying that he answers this in two different ways. He, he talks at first about the temple being destroyed, and then he gives another answer about him coming back. And what the disciples didn't know, and really what no one knew until Jesus revealed it, was that the age to come was going to have two stages. The age to come was going to be in two stages. The first stage was going to be inaugurated by the death of Christ, to where in, the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul can write, Now these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So in Paul's mind, he can talk about the end of the ages already being here. That's what we're living in. Or in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, the writer of Hebrews says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So Jesus' coming was the inauguration or the beginning of the last days or the end of the age. And the consummation of that is his return. So it's a larger event than we knew before Jesus revealed that to us. So when he answers this question in Matthew, he's going to answer both questions. He's going to talk about the temple being destroyed, and he's going to talk about when he's going to come back. And I think that Jesus uses the, a picture of the destruction of the temple as a, as a metaphor or a way of looking through that to the end of the world and the day of the Lord. When you read Josephus on the destruction of the temple, it's a Jewish historian, he, it was a Holocaust-like event. 1.1 million Jews were killed. They surrounded the city with trenches. They crucified anyone who tried to escape facing inward. There was cannibalism. It was horrible. And Jesus says, 
this is the kind of suffering that will come in these last days. He warns about false prophets and false messiahs and wars and rumors of wars. Nations upheaved, upheaved and overthrown. And he says that we will be persecuted, betrayed, and put to death. And these are the beginning of the birth pangs. So during this time period that we live in, we are living through the last days. We are experiencing some of the birth pangs, some of the hardship that he describes in this section. So if that's what the passage is about, let's go to our three, our three takeaways. First, firstly, don't put your hope in the wrong kingdom. Don't put your hope in the wrong kingdom. Jesus is telling his disciples that the temple and the kingdom it represents is coming to an end, so don't hold on to it. It's fascinating to read that the early church historian Eusebius tells us that when the Roman army approached Jerusalem around AD 70, the Christians fled to the mountains of Pella. They knew that this was not going to be their kingdom, and they see the army coming, and they're like, we're out of here. Jesus said this was going to happen. We're going. The Jews stayed behind and fought and tried to protect the temple, and they were slaughtered. And we can learn from that. It's kind of an illustration to us that Jesus is bringing a kingdom, and this is the kingdom that we need to put our hope in, and all the other kingdoms that we might trust in are going to let us down. And I think we can all relate to this because we all have moments of trying to build this kingdom. I especially lately have been making some really big purchases. I bought a house, a car got stolen, so I bought a new car. And when you're, when you're busy with all these kinds of things and you're thinking about moving and decorating and shopping for cars and you're building an earthly kingdom in a sense, it kind of takes over your thinking. And you can ask my wife, we spend so much of our time trying to plan and take care of and do that we can sometimes lose focus on what matters. It can, it can kind of overwhelm. It can start dominating. That anything we try to build our lives around or any earthly kingdom that we pursue, Jesus would say is shifting sand. It's a house built on the sand. It's going to pass away. The persecution that comes will reveal where we built our lives on the wrong kingdom because people will leave the faith. That's what this passage says. Another way of saying this is what the book of Hebrews says in chapter 12. The writer says that at, this, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So that's where we need to be putting our efforts, is our treasure in heaven. And it's all the things the world doesn't put a lot of value in. You know, the world would almost call it a waste of time to care about the poor people of the world that the world wants to pass over, to do something really hard, like adopt a child in need. The world doesn't value this the way that it should, but God values it. And God says, this is us building a kingdom that cannot be shaken, because anything else is passing away. So our first takeaway, don't put your hope in the wrong kingdom. Our second takeaway is, don't let suffering steal your joy. Don't let suffering steal your joy. There's a funny question I keep getting asked up here, and it's this. I was just getting my hair cut the other day, and the, the barber asked me, he said, have you enjoyed the summer? 
which sounds fine, but in the South, you never ask this to people because no one enjoys the summer in Alabama. You survive the summer, and you say, have you enjoyed the autumn, the beautiful October weather? Um, but up here, you know, you survive the winter, so you enjoy the summer, um, I guess. Uh, I'll, I'll appreciate that more next year, I think, after I do the winter with you guys. Um, so the point of that is that the anticipation of what's coming helps you persevere, whether it's the southern summer or the northern winter. You look ahead and you think about, oh, the summer days are coming and it's going to be beautiful and warm and people out everywhere in the park. And that gets you through those January and February cold days where you're stuck indoors. Um, and so that anticipation of what's coming helps you survive and helps you persevere. And what Jesus wants us to know is that we're going to have hardship, but since there's a purpose, it redeems the suffering we go through. The joy ahead, the joy of our redemption is going to bring us through the hardships. In verse 8, he says, all these are the, but the beginning of the birth pangs. And it's striking to me how often the Bible compares the suffering of the people of God to birth pangs. Over and over again in the Old and New Testament, you read this illustration. And I think what God is trying to teach us is that some of the worst pain we experience in this life is going to lead to some of the biggest joys in the life to come. God has a way of redeeming these sorts of things. That in childbirth, the most intense pain that most people ever experience happens in that moment, but it's followed by this beautiful child that you're given. We've done it three times, and I can testify the pain is intense, but afterwards the incitement, excitement is just as intense. So there's a redemption there. Our Romans 8.28 says it like this, that we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean we always know the reasons or how God is going to use the tragedies and the sufferings and the hardships of our life, but this is a really great promise to hold on to when life's worst moments come. This is not a trite thing like, oh yeah, my car got stolen, but I got a new car, so, you know, Romans 8.28. That's not what it means. It's not, <laughs> it's not the little things like that, that you have an earthly answer that, you know, it's better than it used to be. Um, but it, we're waiting a heavenly answer to so many things here. So many of the hardship we go through that only heaven will be able to speak to. Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning and Survive the Holocaust, has this quote in that book that I like. He says, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Meaning that if you have a purpose in front of you, you can go through horrible times because you have a joy set before you. Just like Christ went through the cross with the joy set before him, which was his church. So that's the second takeaway. Don't let suffering rob you of your joy. And our third takeaway in this passage don't lose sight of the mission of God. Don't lose sight of the mission of God. You feel like after these first 13 verses that Jesus is just saying bad thing after bad thing, and then finally in verse 14, there's some good news. He says in verse 14, something positive. This, the, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So following all these promises of hardship, there's a promise of the good news going out in the middle of all these things. It seems like when you read the passage, it would be impossible for the gospel to spread. In the first century, think about the sufferings and the persecutions that the apostles went through. 
you would have think that they would have squashed Christianity right at the beginning. But it exploded in the Roman Empire. And that's a picture to us that even when persecution comes, if it comes to the American church or the way it's come to the churches around the world and different countries, God will spread his gospel in the midst of that. Don't lose sight of the mission of God. The whole gospel, the gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world, and then the end will come. In the book of Acts, at the very beginning, the apostles and Jesus are both back together after the resurrection at the Mount of Olives again. And the apostles ask Jesus the, the same sort of question. They say in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're still asking about, okay, I know what you said back at the Olivet Discourse. It was confusing. How about now? Are we doing this? Are you going to take, are you going to start a, the reign of the Messiah on earth? And Jesus' response is very telling. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So the apostles ask timeline. Jesus responds with mission. He says, don't focus on the things that only God knows about the signs of the end and get obsessed with that and lose the mission. Because in the midst of our life and the chaos and the chaos of world events and upheavals, which is all part of us being in the last days, we still have a mission. We still have the gospel. And God wants to send it forth in a way that the world would never expect, but still accomplish his mission. At the end of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus ends with three different parables, and they all kind of teach the same lesson. I think we're going to look at a couple of these next week, but at the end of chapter 24, in verses 45 and 46, Jesus says, Who then is the wise, faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So the irony of this chapter is that the point is almost the complete opposite of the point that most people take away from it. Most people read the Olivet Discourse, and then they get out a chart, and they start mapping end times prophecy, and they get distracted, and they get obsessed with that. Jesus' point is that things are going to happen, but don't lose sight of the mission. Don't forget that blessed is the servant who's the master finds so doing when he comes that we are about his mission when he comes back. And no one knows when that's going to be. And I think there's one more important takeaway from this chapter. Today we're celebrating communion. And uh, Joey talked about a couple weeks ago that Jesus is a picture of the temple. Jesus is our new temple. When, when Jesus interacts with the woman at the well, he says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, this is John chapter 4, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's saying the hour is coming when the temple in Jerusalem is not going to matter, and the mountain where you falsely worship God in Samaria is not going to matter. There's going to be a new locus of Christian worship, and it's going to be me. It's going to be the temple that I'm going to build, the body of Christ. And then in Matthew chapter 12, earlier in the same book, he says, I tell you, somewhat, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is surpassing the temple. And then lastly, in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
And if you remember the, the story of Jesus' trial, this is one of the things they kept accusing him of. They said, this is the guy who said he's going to burn down, the, destroy the temple and, and rebuild it. But he was obviously talking about the temple of his body. That Jesus was going to let his body, as God's special dwelling on earth, be destroyed, surrounded by enemies, abandoned by God, and crushed. Bearing the wrath of God against the sin of the people, right? But then raised up to be our eternal dwelling and our access to God. So as we close in prayer, remember that Jesus is our temple and that these signs are meant to encourage us to persevere. Whatever life brings your way, whatever hardships you face, Jesus says there's joy at the end of it, so endure to the end. And he says, don't forget the mission I've called you to. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you have encouraged us that we are, should be about your mission, even in the chaos of what it means to live in the 21st century and uh, the chaos of our own lives sometimes and the chaos of illness and distress and despair. Lord, that you say that you have a hope and a promise for us waiting, and that is our motivation, Lord. We thank you that your word offers us this encouragement, Lord, and we also thank you, Jesus, that you are the true temple, that your sacrifice in laying down your body offers us forgiveness and peace with God and reconciliation. I pray that as we celebrate communion this morning, we remember that. We are grateful for that, Lord, and we uh, want to leave worshiping you and living our lives for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.